are a worshiping people. Spiritual formation is intentional. Humans are by nature worshipers. If we do not pay attention to the various cultural practices or liturgies that form our imagination and desires, we will learn to love the wrong things. Every day we are formed by all kinds of cultural liturgies and forms of idolatry that attempt to squeeze us into their mold. We think, of course, of Romans 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, we are committed to forms of worship intentionally and purposefully attempt to counterform us as reflections of Jesus. Although we reject empty ritual and formalism, we do believe the church should work to be intentionally and regularly formed the best of the church's historic forms of worship. It's great to be with, with you today, and we think about as our series begins after a great uh, faith promise on a worshiping people. Well, how are you doing? Good stuff? Hard stuff? There we go. A little bit of both? How are we trending? As a people of, I've got this point in my life now where I can't see with my glasses up front, so it's awkward, I apologize, but I'm getting old, this happens. As a people of new creation, we have thanksgiving for what God has done, amen? But we lament for the things that are happening that not as they should be, but we hope what God will do. The invitation as a worshiping people is to resist the temptation and I would say the addiction to a spirit of despair and fear. The reality is this, we are worshiping all the time. So it's not if, but what you worship. I wrote a little book called Created to Worship, where I thought about that a little bit. Worship, of course, is not just about music, by the way, but about patterns and practices, habits and behavior that shape who you are and who you're becoming, both individually and communally. As my friend Jamie Smith says, we are what we love. Now the reality is I know many of you, and most of you are boring people. <laughs> you have daily habits that are very routinized. If you have a spouse or a roommate, you're not very interesting. You do the same things every day. You probably wash your hair on autopilot and brush your teeth. Uh, yesterday, Saturday, I got to clean my toilets. They are habits. They are good things. And we like hygiene. It's good. It's not all habits and routines are equally powerful or go into the place of worship necessarily. But it is those habits and desires and ambitions that come to the very core of who we are. Those are places of worship. One of the terms, and this, this will be on the midterm, by the way. I'm on sabbatical, so I don't care. It's kind of fun. Um, uh, the word liturgy. Liturgy is a word you've heard before many times, and liturgy just means the work of the people. There are liturgies happening all over the world all the time, every day. And really, it's a term that Christians stole from the Roman culture. And a liturgy really meant an action a person takes, an action a person takes to conform one's allegiance to the empire. So for us today, when you vote or pay your taxes, that's your liturgy to the empire of the United States. Not all bad. There are liturgies we have all the time that, that have allegiance and place of connection there. And let's be aware of one powerful liturgy, the worship of social media, as we all bow down to the iPhone altar. 
someone you talk to, engage with more than any other person probably in the world, right? For better or worse. Um, and by the way, I'm not a psychologist, but there have been tons of studies that show the more you're on social media, the more depressed you are. You can figure that out, I'm not sure. I want you to imagine this amazing liturgical worship service. There's a gathering of people. They are eager and passionate, showing up to the sanctuary two to three hours before the service, just like today. They are dressed intentionally to show their devotion to the service and to God. The choir was practiced with many hours of precision. The tech team had planned it so well. All the microphones had new batteries. There was Koinonian fellowship with other believers. No one was a stranger. As they entered the service, there was great joy of praise and thanksgiving. There was anticipation and expectation. The atmosphere was electric. The seats up front filled first, mostly. The service began in joy, and choruses were sung, and sacred rituals were performed. Praises and laments flowed freely. There was communion of eating and drinking, and tithes and offerings were shared without hesitation in the service. Many gave themselves fully in worship, all senses, all parts of their body fully engaged. After the service was over, many lingered outside the sanctuary, talking and celebrating what has occurred. Well, of course, you know what I'm talking about. It's football. I, I learned, uh, I, I grew up in Seattle, so I'm a Seahawks fan. It's the curse we have. But I learned this mostly going to Kansas City and worshiping at the Temple of Arrowhead Stadium. Of course, they're done for this year. Too bad for them. But I think it's really easy to say the more authentic liturgical worship happens in football stadiums than in sanctuaries in the U.S. So what habits and practices are most powerful for you? As we worship things all the time, some of those things we worship kind of come in tension. For example, I try to work hard to stay in shape and work out and run, but I also eat crumble cookies. Those things kind of compete. Are also in the midterm, this is called syncretizing worship. When different things we worship kind of come in conflict one to another, and what we know is this, we are becoming like the gods that we worship. But Yahweh is jealous. There is a danger of trying to worship God while also worshiping the gods of power, consumerism, nationalism, and the God, for some of us, this is the hardest one, the God of comfort and safety. I don't want to be bothered. What gods are most powerfully shaping you into their image today? Uh, we'll first go uh, to Romans 12. In a few moments, we'll be reading from John 4. Romans 12 began this way, Therefore, in view of God's mercy, one of the great sins of the Old Testament was forgetting God. And not like they kind of forgot God existed, but they acted as if God did not exist. Remembering is more than a mental recollection, but living as if the God who acted in the past will act in the future and our hope for today. Let's give a case study. Um, the, the Jews were in slavery. For 400 years, it was not good. So God sent Moses. Moses had a little detour, but eventually got back. And they had these 10 plagues. And one could argue it was God's way of showing that God was the true God, not the gods of Egypt. 10 plagues, mighty, powerful acts. 
So for an afternoon, Pharaoh lets them go. So they head on out. Things are going okay. Pharaoh then changes Pharaoh's mind. By the way, there's a rule you have to preach on Exodus here, just so you know. It's one of the rules here. We, we don't kick out, which I don't know. Ten plagues. Uh, they leave. Uh, then they, Pharaoh decides it's not a good idea. So the army comes after him. God sends this pillar of fire uh, that kind of stops and blocks uh, Pharaoh's army. So then they kind of part the Red Sea, and it moves, and they walk through it, and they're walking to the other side, and Pharaoh's army comes in, and God withdraws God's breath, and the floods overtake them, and the Pharaoh's army is destroyed. And then they're over there. Ten minutes later, they're hungry, and like, where's God? I wonder how quick we are to forget. Remembering is an act of hope. And thankfulness for what God has done, hope for what God is doing in the future. And in some regard, that hope invades an uncertain presence. We have a danger of being held captive to our momentary circumstance. Not that those don't matter, but God's invitation is an act of resistance sometimes. It is crucial for us, as we are worshiping people, to remember God is the source of all that we have. With that pattern and practice, we're moved from entitlement— Everything I have, I've earned or deserved. And a fearful hoarding, those two often go together, in that myth of scarcity. Moving that to a spirit of thanksgiving and joyful hospitality and generosity. Well, in light of all that God has done, what does Paul say? Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. A living sacrifice is nothing more or less than offering all that you are and all that you hope to be. It's offering to God your hurts and your pains, your anger, your brokenness, and your gifts, your hopes, your dreams. Friends around here, <laughs> that's what sanctification's about. It's offering God all that we have and are. And for the worship that God invites us to, we don't offer God worship things that cost us nothing. We offer to God the very core of all that we are, and this blessed journey of that growth of offering our kind of fancy church word is consecration, offering our life back to God. Here's the thing. I'm kind of, Bob Dylan, I think he was a singer, right? I'm not, I'm not, right. Uh, you're going to worship somebody? That's a song from the old people, 60s and 70s. Right? You're going to worship somebody. You're going to give your life to something. What's it going to be? That, that's kind of what the point of that conversation is. So after we offer that, we said Romans 12, 2 says this. Do not conform to the patterns of this world, worshiping things that will leave us empty. I mean, I don't know what they are for you. That was Brian, that was Ryan speaking in there. What other things? Um, are they the gods of money and possessions or prestige, comfort? What I've noticed is this. We often turn to other gods because really, if we're honest, God is just not enough. And our culture is so accommodating. Social media will remind you, you are not enough. You are inadequate. You need more. Your life is not what it should be. We have a world of uh, TikTok or Photoshop happiness, where all of a sudden there's angst. We didn't need to have angst. And we believe it. We buy into it. And our discontent grows. One of the things we attempt to do in filling that void is that worshiping that God of consumerism, simply buying one more thing will do it, versus a Christian liturgy of giving our stuff away, our life away, 
Sharing, that's where joy is found. As opposed to a God of comfort and fear, of being afraid of other people who are different than us, we're good at that today, versus a God of courage, hospitality, compassion, and reconciliation. One of the other gods, uh, I think two good things COVID exposed, well only two, there's not many, but two good things that COVID brought us, is it remind us of the liturgy of an overly busy life, pretending our life has meaning or importance simply because we're busy, rather than a liturgy of shalom, peace, and rest. So they put on my youth pastor hat for my uh, junior high uh, pastor sermon today. All of you today are good. You are loved. You are enough just as you are. And let me encourage you again, as I would if you were 12 years old, to seek things other than God for meaning and value will em- leave you empty. So, do not conform to those cultural literacy. Be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And our mind is not simply a place of mental ideas, but our mind means our whole idea of passions and desires and practices. Now, the truth is this. Habits are hard to break. Amen? But the good news is that God can help us to cut out those things in your life that are taking away your joy, taking away love, taking away your hope, and then add things that can be life-giving to that. This helps us to discern God's will. Now, be around college students, being a former youth pastor, you know, God's will for them often meant, right? Who am I going to marry, perhaps? What job will I have? Where will I live? And God cares about those things. But God's will is way easier to discern than those things for all of you. God's will is very simple. God desires that you would feel God's love. And as you experience God's love, you can then invite to love yourself better, love others as we engage in this world. So what are you worshiping? What gods do you serve? What habits are winning? How are you being shaped? If you're not sure, the church has a new ministry where we will videotape your life for a month, 24-7. I'm not sure why you're laughing. Uh, But then we'll 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 give you a recap. You see, here's what we know. Your actions are your beliefs. Your actions are your worship. They're describing who you are and what you want to be. As we move to our John text, I want to help us hear this. Be a worshiping people. God indeed wants your life to have deeper levels of prosperity and joy and hope. Not because life's always going to be easy, but to know that God can be with you and you can be with others during hard times. But God desires to help bring the new creation in all the world. Your life God wants to do way more than that. Let's not settle for that. I invite us to turn to John 4. If you're able, I invite you to stand. Um, folks, I'm going to read verse 19. I, I told them to read the earlier passage. This is John 4. Sorry, 19. Sorry about that PowerPoint team. I messed you up there. Jesus comes to Samaria. We'll talk about that. Meets the woman. Talk about that. But I want you to hear this connection they have with Jesus about who she is. So again, John 4, verses 19. The woman said, Sir, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you and your people say that it is necessary to worship in Jerusalem. 
Jesus said to her, believe me, woman, the time is coming when you and your people will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You and your people worship what you don't know. We worship what we know because salvation is from the Jews. And here's the key verse here. But the time is coming and is here when true worshipers will worship in spirit and truth. The Father looks for those who worship them this way. God is spirit and it is necessary to worship God in spirit and truth. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks. You may be seated. Because I was trained by George Lyons and Wendell Bowes, I have to give a little backstory here. Um, Jews and Samaritans did not get along. Uh, a little bit of history here that might be on the midterm. We'll see in 2 Kings 17, you'll recall that Samaria was the capital of Israel and divided kingdoms occurred. But then Assyria came and invaded them in 721. And Assyrians brought in these outsiders, foreigners with all their weird customs and beliefs, kind of like Californians coming here. Um, uh, never mind. Yeah, it's all great. It's good. But one of the things they did is they, they had syncretized worship. And by the way, Solomon taught them how to do this. They thought, we'll just add Yahweh on. I think many Christians, we just kind of add Yahweh as part of the mix. That left them confused, and Jews kind of felt they were better then. Ezra 4, another issue. The Samaritans offered to help the Jews when they were rebuilding the temple when they were coming back from um, exile. But the Jews said, we don't want your money. Essentially, we're too good for you. Go home. That did not help. In 200 BCE, there was a fight about the right place of worship. The Samaritans built a shrine near Mount Gerizim, a place where we believe was close to where um, Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac and where Abraham met Melchizedek. The Jews thought this is bad, so in 128, they came and destroyed that shrine. That did not help. So when Jesus comes on the scene, the Jews and Samaritans are not getting along at all. But here is the point of this text for us today. Getting old, I can't see things, Diane, come on. The outcome of the new creation, it says in John 4, 4, Jesus had to go through it, and it wasn't because the GPS said it was shorter, because it was. He had to go through it because of the new creation worship. Jesus seeks for persons to be reconciled and enemies to be welcomed and outsiders to be opened in, that there would be no longer enmity between them. Let us never settle for anything less than that. So the question for us, as God's con conforming us to the patterns of Christian worship, where are places of brokenness in our society today? Maybe it's not hard to find that. Where are places of prejudice? Whether it be around nationalism, ethnicity, gender, socioeconomic status, we will pay attention to the fact that it's Black History Month, and it's important for us, all of us, to listen and learn, lament, confess, and repent, and seek ways of transformation and participation in this new creation that God wants to do. In fact, college is a great list of activities. We invite you to participate in those as you're able. But we can say this very, very clearly. Divisions... And brokenness have no future in the coming new creation. Amen? Amen? So rather than exacerbating those divisions, 
Can we participate in what God is doing to heal and reconcile? And it's not because we're always going to agree on everything. We have confused unity with uniformity. We're going to be different because you're weird and I'm weird. But as John Wesley taught us, Diane, we might think alike, but may we love alike. Can we be known for our love? Can Christians, we be known as a worshiping people, more about uniting and reconciling rather than dividing? Well, going through Samaria, Jesus meets a, a woman at the well. Now again, for any of you Old Testament nerds, uh, some things should be flashing off in your heads. Um, 1 Kings 17, this mirrors Elijah going to the widow at Sidon asking for water. I want to say this, um, putting my little professor hat on. In this section, we didn't read it today, Jesus tells this woman, I am the one who offers you living water, of which you drink of this, you'll never thirst again. But the person who said that, he was thirsty. Jesus, in this very mystery, was both fully God and fully human. Let us never lose sight of that in all its complexity and beauty. But in that thirst, he comes to her. Other connections of Old Testament stories, and often when men and women met in the wells, what happened? In the Old Testament nerds, they got engaged, right? Uh, remember the story of Isaac in Genesis 24, Jacob in Genesis 29, Moses in Exodus 2. And I will say these Old Testament stories of weddings connect to John, the Gospel of John's wedding and imagery. But this wedding feast is not about a man and a woman, what we call the eschatological feast of the full kingdom coming, and this is very important, for all people, for all nations. And it is celebrating the Messiah and the church who is Christ's bride. So unlike Old Testament well scenes, Jesus does not come to the well looking for a woman to be his bride, but for a witness who will recognize the Messiah and bring lost people to him. You see, here's what I've come to learn. What truly is our worship is what we're going to tell folks about. We share things that are most important to us. What are you telling folks about? Well, this woman um, doesn't always get it, as disciples didn't always get it either. And they talk about this water, and she's, Jesus is like, I can give you water. And she's like, you don't have a bucket. You can't help me. Um, he, she also reminded him of the prejudice that existed in that day. I think I'm very good at reminding God of what can't happen and the current rules. What does it mean that God invites us to be a people who can believe what God can do beyond we can ask or imagine? Jesus says, if you knew who I was here, you'd ask me for water. Um, Jesus says, I'm the living water. And the woman thinks, this sounds really cool. I can drink this and never have to come back to this well again. She's still thinking about a kind of water that we're used to. But Jesus says, those who drink of me will have a, a life everlasting and bubbling up. Are you thirsty? What are you thirsty for? And then, what are you drinking? Have you ever drank something that made you more thirsty? Jesus says, you know, you drink from this well, it's great, you'll be thirsty again. But what does it mean to drink from the well to which satisfies and satisfies abundantly? 
Well, from living water, we turn to her life, and it gets a little awkward. I'll read this here in verse 16. It said, Jesus said to her, go get your husband and come back here. The woman replied, I don't have a husband. You are right to say I don't have a husband, Jesus answered. You've had five husbands, and the man you are now with isn't your husband. You've spoken the truth. Now, confession time. I've heard many sermons, and maybe preached a few sermons, where clearly we now know this woman is a sinner. She's coming in the middle of the day. It's a place of shame. Five husbands. The way isn't your husband? But I did some more reading and research and thought, could it be that she has been in that day and age widowed or divorced, things beyond her control? I think it's interesting the prejudices we bring onto texts about who is guilty and who is not. It's very reasonable to assume, in fact, we can see this clearly, she's not a sinner. The gospel makes no commentary of her behavior, but actually she becomes the true disciple of early John, countering Nicodemus in the previous chapter. Could do a long service on prejudices and that sort of thing. And if you disagree with me, you have to argue with George Lyons because he says it's true. So good luck with that. But Jesus had seen her. I mean, Jesus had seen her. He spoke right into the places of perhaps her pain, her disruption, her anxiety, and now she knew Jesus wasn't playing. Jesus knew her. So more of an exchange, we get to that verse, verse 23, I'll read it again. But the time is coming. They're arguing, of course, about where to worship and who's the right worshipers. And Jesus is like, look, the time is coming and is here now. When true worshipers will worship in spirit and truth. Notice Jesus was saying, what is happening? We're not fighting about Jerusalem, Mount Gerizim, whether you're a Samaritan or a Jew. I am the one here from which the center of worship will happen. There's this already and not yet as a foundation for hope for what it means. So what does it mean to worship in spirit and truth? I think in part it means we look very carefully. What gods are you worshiping? And if you're not sure... Sign up for the video ministry. What does it mean that we live in this Trinitarian worship of worshiping the Father in the name of the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit? And to worship that God in spirit and truth means we are to be more fully every day transformed in the image of Jesus Christ. And this is a question meant not for guilt but for hope. How well do you look like Christ? And the good news is that God's not asking you to, you to do more. God's inviting you to come closer. We're always, uh, as sanctification is a long journey of God's love and healing and transformation. We do it individually, we do it communally, and that's the goal. Drink that. Don't drink the other stuff telling you you've got to look this and own that to be important and find self-worth. To find who you are in Christ is going to be the foundation to a place of joy as the circumstances of life come what may. Worshiping in spirit and truth will also mean that we will, as we are leaning into and receiving God's love and loving ourselves, there will be a place of overflowing love for the other. And especially those whom we as a society have cast into the shadows, those on the margins, which actually is probably where Jesus spends most of God's time. 
To worship in spirit and truth is both a command, but also a beautiful, loving, warm, gracious promise that God says, there is victory ahead for you. And not just for you, what God wants to do in the world. But friends, um, worship as a worshiping people is not simply about our internal moral transformation of our person, but a healing and hope for justice in all the world. And hear this as I've been challenged by this the last couple of years. Those in power often want to minimize the transformations of structural justice God wants to work in the world. Too often the powerful are happy for internal transformation, but are resistant when unjust structures need to be undone. When my life is good, just deal with me. I don't want to mess with the ways in which my life is comfortable, even when that is exploiting others. To be a spirit of truth people is to be reconciled where there's places of prejudice, justice for those who are unjust. And one more thing, too, that God taught me now a while ago. When Jesus prayed, love your enemies, guess what Christians are released from having? Enemies. Jesus' call to love enemies means we no longer see And what is an enemy? A nameless, faceless other who at best we ignore and leave in broken relationships or at worst we kill and view as a threat. Jesus saw no one as an enemy. He loved everyone despite those who might thought him to be an enemy. If I'm honest, since I'm getting old, too many of us Christians, we're addicted to having enemies. We're addicted to fear and despair. But God offers a powerful invitation to be set free in a place of being a part of this new creation kingdom coming where the world is reconciled in Koinonia. The rest of the passage, after where I stop reading, says the woman goes back to her town. She has still some confusion there, but knows, sums up with Jesus. So the town, she tells them, Jesus told me amazing things. Come and see him. They all go out in verse 42. They all believe. These Samaritans. This is a clear representation of the promise. You remember what God promised Abram in Genesis 12. That as you're a blessing, I want you to be a blessing to all the world. You realize like that's the goal, right? Not just for us in here, but all the world could be drinking from Christ the living water. Here's what I'm convinced, though. If that's not meaningful for us in here, it's not going to mean much to them out there. You see, we testify, when are you evangelizing? All the time. The question is, what are you evangelizing to or about? Which gods are most powerful in your life? One more thing that I want to say here. Um, this is probably an easy crowd to say this to, but I'd say it anywhere. If you look carefully in the Gospels, it is not the men who are the best disciples, it is the women. It is clear, begin to clap, sure, come on, Diane, a little clap there, Carly. Um, there are some verses we can talk about in the Bible, but what is clear is God has called women to lead the church. We have a whole other sermon on what happens on Easter Sunday morning, and who's there? It's not the guys. I'll say that for later. 
But it is important to celebrate women are called to lead. And in fact, the, the, John is clear as compared to Nicodemus who comes at night and runs away and cowers. This woman, her reputation in the community, she goes in daylight to speak to her community and the community comes. She is the pastor. She is the evangelist. She is the model for us. In light of what this worship is inviting us to do, we think about what barriers and divisions exist in the world today. That our spirit and what God wants to do in spirit and truth, what things are inviting to be dismantled and undone. I'm reminded, and uh, about two-thirds of you in here are old. You'll know you're old right now. Mikhail Gorbachev. Anybody? You know that name? You're old. Congratulations. Unless you learned it, YouTube, whatever. I never forget, I, don't, I didn't look it up, 1986-87, Ronald Reagan stands up somewhere, maybe there at the Berlin Wall, says, Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Powerful moment, right? Um, I wonder if God is saying us today, Christians, believers, tear down those walls. What walls exist today? that God by the Spirit is wanting His new creation people to participate in. We're not going to build walls, we're going to build bridges. We're going to find ways to, as our worship is healing us and transforming us, we're called to participate in what God is doing in all the world. And it starts right here, in silly old Caldwell, Nampa, Marsing, Parma, Meridian, whatever we are. What dreams and prayers is God praying for us today? The good news is this. We cannot do this on our own. Amen? I, I'm not a good sociologist or historian. It does feel like there is polarization. And I think social media has enabled us to speak all of our opinions. And some things should better be left unsaid. I don't know if it is or just feels like there's more angst and anxiety. And, you know, um, the listening you can't talk about grows every day. But what I know is this, we pray that prayer every week. God, may your kingdom come more fully. Can we be a people who are reaching out in hospitality and compassion? First, there are places where there is brokenness, those who experience injustice. And then where are places that God's inviting us to lean into those who are hurting and lost? How are we invited to humble ourselves, get over our pride? And I've got some great opinions, by the way. Just ask me. I can say them loud. But God is saying, in all our beautiful diversity, can we be a people of love and compassion and hospitality? So I invite you, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and pleasing to God, that is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. Don't be sucked into those liturgies of social media and culture telling you are not, you're nothing, you're insignificant, you're not good enough. You are good and beautiful. So be, be transformed by the renewing of your minds in Jesus Christ. You can experience God's love deep in the places of brokenness and pain to offer to your God our hopes and laments. And then God can empower us individually and collectively to become that new creation worshiping people. And that is the aroma. That's our body odor that we're spreading to the world. Love, grace, reconciliation, and hope. But we do not do this simply by trying harder.
we, God invites us to come closer. We're going to come to the Eucharist right now. I know when those were coming at the end, we did not get the, the, the elements. Um, I think we found some more. If you did not get the elements, I'm trusting on faith here. Can you raise your hand? And I hope we have more to give you. If you're not at the Eucharist, you came in. We were kind of allowed, when I was in the service, you're missing some. Ushers are there. Thank you, Mike Poe. If you need the Eucharist elements, you raise your hand real quick and make sure I get those to you. Thank you, Carrie. Anybody else? Wave your hand. Make sure everybody has some elements. Here at College Church, you don't have to be a member of our church. The Lord's table is open to all those who are hungry and thirsty for God, who want to offer their lives back to God. It's a covenant meal, but a meal of hope. It's interesting about this meal, isn't it? Who was at this meal? Jesus invited Judas at the meal. Jesus invited 11 other disciples who all betrayed him that night. So this is not about your worthiness. This has come saying, God, I need your help. I come to you offering my life to you with my anger, with my hope, my dreams, my pains. God, I don't want to carry any longer. I want to trust you. To receive the gift of God's love, we offer ourselves to God. So we pray these prayers together. On the night which was betrayed, he took bread, he broke it. He gave it to the disciples and said, take and eat. This is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. If you want God's life and blood, and take it now, the, the, the Christ's blood. Christ's body, sorry. So too, after the supper, the cup, this is the cup of my salvation, my blood poured out for you, for the salvation of you and those Samaritans and the North Koreans and the Mexicans and all our friends around the world. This is my blood for the healing of the world. If you want that healing of Christ's blood in your life, take the blood today. Gracious God, we thank you for these most precious gifts of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He came to this earth to reconcile and redeem all the lost. And then for his prayer for his church, your body, is that we would become what we eat of, the body of Christ, sent out into the world to find those in the margins, to find places where there's prejudice and brokenness, and to be a part of reconciliation. Lord, help us be your church in a joyful hope, not naive to the hard things that are happening, but entering right into the face of those who are suffering, being that presence of God. And Lord, as we prayed earlier, may this communion work in us, transform us to better be your people, to be a people of hope and grace, being close to the needs of those who are suffering, but living not in fear, not in despair, not building walls, building bridges of reconciliation and justice for every woman and man in this earth. May it happen in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and sing today.